0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde.
1: All right, welcome to the second hour of our broadcast. A shout-out to our friends listening to us live on K Talk 1640 AM in Salt Lake City, as well as those of you tuned in via the uh, Loving Liberty radio network. Whether it's at LovingLiberty.net, where we stream live, or the uh, 24-7 app, you can download to your smartphone. Great way to take us with you. I know I'm I'm very flattered that you would listen to me, but I want to tell you, we have a number of great hosts on this program. All of us share a deep love for liberty, as well as a desire to to use whatever influence we have to help promote things that are sound, that lead to greater liberty and, and greater freedom for all of us. And I hope, that, uh, I hope that's something that you share. If that's a, if that's a common goal, if, you, if that's common ground that you and I can stand on, please let other people know what we're doing and, and help us to, to bring some truth and light to a world that, uh, well, I think I can say without exaggeration, could use a little infusion of truth and light. In this hour, we're going to be talking about stimulus checks. Now, you know, on principle, I'm going to tell you right up front, I am very, I'm very opposed to stimulus checks. And at the same time, there is a struggle in my heart thinking, well, you know, extra couple thousand bucks I could really put to good use, could use some new carpet, the car could use new tires. There's always more gun stuff, you know, right? Or or barbecue accessories, because that's something I'm kind of into. So I'm sure I'm not the only person having that battle in my heart. We're going to talk about why the government stimulus checks are a really bad idea, even though I'm going to confess to you right up front. I love getting checks with my name on them just as much as the next guy. We're also going to talk a little bit about why is it that uh, that the mindset of freedom isn't a mainstream thing. Okay, this isn't a victim complex. This isn't, oh, you know, we're all martyrs because we're standing for freedom and no one will agree. It's it's a real thing. The political left and right reject freedom-minded thinking and action. Now I'm going to use the word libertarianism, but I want you to understand. I'm not shilling for the Libertarian Party, so much as the idea that nobody should be initiating force against someone else. So that's on the 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 list as well. We're going to talk a little bit about the new normal. I don't know if you're you know up for one way sidewalks and elbow bumps instead of handshakes and uh, parking lot dining rooms at your favorite eating establishments. I know these are temporary things that we're seeing pretty much everywhere we go right now, but what if this is going to become the long-term way of doing things? We'll have some thoughts on that. And if there's time, we're going to give some accolades to Texas for being what must be the safest darn place in the whole country. Why do I say that? Well, you know, if the uh, police have time to set up sting operations to arrest two young women for doing manicures at home during the shutdown, There must not be any real crime going on if they have to go around making up crimes, if you get my drift. Let's talk about stimulus checks first. I know a lot of people are suffering. And I am not indifferent to this. I'm not going to give you the old pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get some marketable skills, you know, learn how to code or whatever else, you know, may be the case. The fact of the matter is it's out of a lot of people's hands. If you're an employee and your business has been shut down, you don't have a lot of say in the matter. A lot of employees have been furloughed. A lot of them are now finding out, you know, your job isn't going to be here in another couple of weeks. That puts them in a very dire circumstance. And, of course, politicians are more than happy to ride to the rescue. Well, we're here. Have $1,200. This is the equivalent of the mess of pottage for which Esau sold his birthright to his brother. At least in a political sense. But for a lot of people, that $1,200, that's a drop in the bucket. That's not even going to get them through, you know, making the rent payment, depending on where they live. So why do people embrace this? Why, why are politicians saying, well, we need to spend more? I mean, trillions. Billions used to get people to gasp and clutch their chest. Oh, man, that's a lot of money. No more. Billions? Pfft, that's chump change. Nobody thinks you're serious unless you're talking trillions of dollars. Well, what if government stimulus was not a solution and not because uh, it's, it's being, you know, offered by the Democrats or offered by the Republicans? I think it's safe to say it's being offered by both in this case, or at least supported by both. But what if it's not a solution because it does not and cannot expand the economy? Paul Swick, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has an essay that is very worth your consideration, He points out that the stimulus checks are out. There seems there are even more on their way. But he says every time there is a recession or even an economic slowdown, there always seems to be a cry from the political class. We need to stimulate the economy. And he asks, now, why is that? Is it because they are so altruistic? He says politicians are people just like you and me. They look out for themselves first. Of course, we can find individual exceptions here and there, but the overall point is they are cut from the same cloth as the rest of us. And a politician's first job is to get reelected, and that's much easier to do when your constituents are happy. In other words, if the economy is good, the chances of winning reelection are much better. So it comes as no surprise that politicians want to stimulate the economy, especially in an election year. Now, maybe some people take that as helpful. I find it as opportunistic. We'll come back to this commentary in just a moment. Caller, welcome to the show. Hi ho, neighborino. All right. Well, I'm going to move on here because I I have much to cover and not a lot of time to cover it. If you want to join the conversation, 801-331-8113 is the number. So let's talk about the problem. And again, this is from Paul Swick who says the desire, this desire to get reelected leads to the question, what is the best way to stimulate the economy? Now, the most comprehensive measure of economies would be gross domestic product. It measures the amount of final goods and services sold within a defined geographic region over a specified period of time. And there are three different ways you can calculate GDP. There's the expenditures method, the income method and value added method. Of the three, the expenditures method is the most widely used, and it's calculated by adding consumption expenditures, investment expenditures, government spending, and net export spending. And he puts together the the equation for it. GDP equals C plus I plus G plus NX. You math kids are going to love this one. By far, the largest component, though, is consumption. And consumption comprises about two-thirds of the total spending, which means that a small change in consumption can have a very large effect on GDP. So let's suppose GDP is $100, consumption is $66.67. If there is a 10% drop in consumption spending, $6.67, then to make up for that reduction, the other components would have to increase by 20%. Put simply, a change in consumption has twice the effect of all the other components combined. So here's a recap of the conventional wisdom. When politicians look at reelection, they focus on the economy. I've talked about this for years, right? How do they define whether we're doing well or not? Well, how many jobs? How much, you know, how, how much federal spending is being done in your area? When the political class looks at the economy, he says they look at GDP. The largest component of GDP is consumption spending. And the quickest path to stimulate GDP is through consumption. However, if consumption falls, then it takes a lot of stimulus to the other components to make up that difference. So the most popular course that government takes is to stimulate consumption. Now, unfortunately, this narrative is only half the story. As Henry Hazlitt explains in Economics in One Lesson, we need to look at the entire picture. Quote, the whole of economics can be reduced to a single lesson, and that lesson can be reduced to a single sentence. The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer-term effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Quote. By the way, Bastiat also talked about this in his essay, That Which is Seen and That Which is Not Seen. So the author here says, what's missing? What has been ignored is the source of this stimulus. Where does the government get the wherewithal to add to the GDP? Now, you might say, well, they get it from Congress. Others might say the Federal Reserve System simply prints the money. However, this is only focusing on money or dollars. Money is a medium of exchange. Money connects what I produce to what you produce. In other words, money's not a source of value. In order to answer our question, we have to go deeper. What the powerful elites, the news media, politicians, etc. want us to see is the guy pouring water into a leaking pool, adding value, if you will. As he pours the water in, the media focuses on the splashing water and comments how wonderful the additional water will be for raising the level of the pool. What they do not show you is where the water is coming from, the source. If we pull back and we look at the whole picture... We can see the guy is filling the bucket from one end of the pool, only to run around to the other side and pour it back in. And if this wasn't bad enough, as the poor fellow's running and hurrying, he sloshes water out of the pail. So this process isn't adding value. And in fact, it's likely making the situation worse. In other words, when the government spends money... It is merely transferring it. It's moving the water from one end of the pool to the other and wasting quite a bit in the process. And that transfer is obvious because we're we're directly taxed. It's also fairly obvious when the government borrows the money because people can see the size of the national debt that will have to be paid back. What we're not seeing is inflation. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sharing with you an article from the Foundation for Economic Education on why government stimulus is a very bad idea. And I'm ser- I'm sharing this with the understanding that I love to see checks show up in the mail with my name on them or even direct deposit. Love to get money. But this is not helping us. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Rob, thanks for holding on. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Brian. Yeah, you know, your topic's very... Uh I think that should be on that's the number one thing that should be on everybody's mind right now. We we we've surpassed the breaking point. I mean, we're at negative -4.85% on our GDP now. So, I think you know, probably one of these mornings we're all going to wake up either there'll be an economic collapse or we'll be at war with a a, a very big contender. That's about the only thing I can think that's going to happen here that's going to pull us out, or not pull us out, but the results of this. Uh, I mean, we
1: can't pay I'm with you. Anymore. I'm with you. That is, that's the concern I share as well, is we are, we're getting in deep enough water financially that uh, the, the powers that be are going to have to distract us and, and put us into some other kind of mindset other than focusing on um, how they are spending us into oblivion. War would be about the most okay. obvious choice.
0: I mean, we're at the point now where the people should really go in, physically remove Congress out of office and put them in chains and shackles because that's what they're doing to us right now. They're literally putting you, me, our families, our children, our grandchildren in chains and shackles now. We're going to wake up, the IMF is going to say, you thought you were going to get that pension? Well, you need to think again, because that's not the case anymore. Accounts will be probably freeze. and uh, a lot of these people have thought they were going to g- it happened in Greece not too long ago. Right, I mean,
1: were, right. I, and I, Cyprus.
0: I just, yes, I, I just can't imagine how many people have just forgotten about that. That was 125 percent of their GDP. Once, once they hit that, it was game over for them. The IMF had to come in and say, Mr. City Worker, I'm sorry, but your pension plan that you thought you were gonna get is no longer available at the rate you thought it was gonna be. We're gonna slice off thirty five to forty percent of it. Wow. That's what's gonna happen here.
1: Rob, I appreciate I appreciate you weighing in here. I, I want to get back to this article because i've I've got some more information. look, understanding that it's going on that's the easy part, and it 's the part that leaves us with a sick feeling in our stomachs. Why is it going on? This is where we all need to bone up on our understanding of economics and and I'm right there with everybody else you know i'm trying I'm trying to get my mind around how can this happen and And going back to this article again, this is from the Foundation for Economic Education website written by Paul Swick. I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, He talks about how when the government transfers wealth using inflation, which is by dumping money into the money supply, it does so indirectly. And so it's not obvious to many people. And when prices start to rise, they can always have scapegoats to, to misdirect blame. So what is inflation? Here's a great explanation. He says, again, let's take a step back. Let's assess the problem. When there is an increase in the number of apples, what happens to the price of apples? Right, It falls. If there's an increase in the amount of cars, shirts, or any number of things, then isn't it true that their prices also fall? This is simple supply and demand. Yes, of course. What happens if we increase the amount of dollars, also known as monetary expansion? Can the price of dollars also fall? Yes. The price of the dollar or any money is called its purchasing power. As the amount of dollars increase, the purchasing power of each dollar falls. That means we need more dollars to buy other items. In other words, if at first we could buy a gallon of milk for $3, then after monetary expa- expansion, it will take more dollars, maybe 3.25, 3.50, even $4 to buy another gallon. This increase in the price is called inflation. And the bottom line is that as more dollars are created, the value of every dollar diminishes. So with monetary expansion, as you hold on to the dollar, the dollar's value melts away. Now, some might be tempted to celebrate this loss of value because it'll hurt the rich more. Not so fast. Those that have their wealth in dollars are surely the most affected. They're the big losers. However, rich people do not tend to hold their wealth in the form of cash. Instead, they hold their wealth in assets denominated in dollars like stocks and bonds. So that means as the value of the dollar falls, their assets prices rise along with the inflation rate. Now, as far as the source of wealth, we have to remember government does not create wealth. At best, it can only transfer wealth. And all too often, lots of it gets sloshed out, wasted as government taxes and spends. Only the private sector can create wealth. But why is that? Why can't the government also create value and wealth? Well, he says to find our answer, we have to think about the source of value. The creation of value stems primarily from two sources, trading and following the law of comparative advantage. Now, the reason why trade generates values, value rather, is because we're different people. Each person has a unique set of tastes and preferences. These tastes and preferences are sovereign, meaning no one can tell you what you have to like, and they're also subjective, meaning that no one can read your mind and measure how much you like what you like. So the best way to illustrate this concept is through an example. Suppose that I have some apples and you have blueberries. What would get us to trade? And the answer is unequal values. If we both valued the blueberries more than the apples, then we wouldn't trade. If we both valued the apples more than the blueberries, again, we wouldn't trade. I would trade only when I value what I am getting, the blueberries, more than what I'm giving up, the apples. And you would trade only when you were getting the apples, when what you were getting, like the apples, was valued more by you than what you're giving away the blueberries since these valuations are not equal it allows each of us to give up something of lower value in exchange for something of higher value both sides win both sides gain that's how value is created now the second way in which the market generates value is a little more complex and that stems from the law of comparative advantage the best explanation that he gives is one by manuel Ayo in his monograph not a zero-sum game The concept of this law centers on the minimization of opportunity costs. When we minimize our opportunity costs, we are also maximizing our gains. So the law of comparative advantage shows that if the only factor we allow to be changed is the allocation of time, making some product, and we hold everything else constant, capping total time worked, prohibiting learning that increases individual productivity, forbidding improvements in technology, etc., then when we divide tasks and specialize labor in accordance to minimizing our opportunity costs, we're actually able to increase the amount of physical stuff we produce. It's almost like magic. And he has a video that he links to here that, that explains it very well. He says, I believe that the law of comparative advantage may be one of the hardest concepts in economics, but it's well worth studying because it demonstrates how markets are able to naturally generate more value than the effort put into them. Value is created. So now we come full circle. Government stimulus is not a solution because it does not and cannot expand the economy. If increasing spending was all that it took to grow an economy, then every government ever would have been able to achieve enormous growth rates. Venezuela would be extremely prosperous rather than being a basket case. The Soviet Union would not only still exist, it would be the envy of the world. History shows us time and again the folly of reckless government spending. Now, many smart, smart people are fooled to take the wrong path, searching for economic stimulus because they're just looking at the surface. They see GDP, consumer spending, unemployment. They only see the consequences of economic activity. They aren't looking at the deeper connections such as sources of value and wealth. They aren't looking at the whole problem, as Hazlitt warned against. And this shallow economic thinking results in the folly of inflationary government stimulus spending. Sadly, he says, Hazlitt may have been right when he said the lessons of inflation are soon forgotten. They apparently must be relearned in every generation. But by studying deeper economic concepts such as the law of comparative advantage, you'll be able to avoid these pitfalls and articulately advocate against reckless policies. By the way, he has a great list of free fee courses from the Foundation for Economic Education on economics and government. There's a wealth of information in this link. Go to the show notes at lovingliberty.net and spend some time learning. You'll be glad you did.
0: trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.
1: Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I saw this yesterday on Facebook, and I wanted to share this, and, and I'm going to apologize in advance because uh, this this makes a lot of sense to me but i'm also finding it kind of feeds the anger in my belly and i, I have uh, i have tapped into what i was surprised to find some previously undiscovered reserves of anger for the people who are clamoring for greater authoritarianism and it's not it's not that i'm looking for an enemy it's just i take my freedom seriously i presume you probably do as well and when i see people who are working actively working against everybody's freedom. It it makes me angry. By the way, Ralph DeLugas in Stranger Than a Fiction will have a remarkable segment on this later this afternoon when his show airs at five o'clock mountain time. Well worth your time to hear it. Um, he's really got a great take on how that anger really isn't helping us. So I say this with the understanding this ticks me off, but I'm working on it. And by the way, I agree with what this writer says. This is Tom Cranawitter. He says, I've said this all along. Stop the paychecks for government employees, all of them. And watch how quickly government bureaucrats stop harassing the very citizens those bureaucrats have prohibited from working. Hmm. He says, it's embarrassing and shameful that we allow the political class to continue receiving taxpayer funded paychecks at the same moment the political class is prohibiting taxpayers from earning paychecks. Let some health department bureaucrats and some cops and some prosecutors and some judges and some legislators and some governors miss a few paychecks. Then let's see how eager they are to harass citizens who are trying to be productive and feed their own families. He says, we launched a bloody tax revolt in 1776 for injustices that pale compared to what government is doing right now. And the injustices now are excused by nothing more than wildly inaccurate mathematical models and predictions. He says, perhaps it's time for another tax revolt of one kind or another. He says, I, for one, have no interest in sending my money to the political class. Do you? For you who are sitting at home right now, scared to open your business because the political class might take your money or put you in jail, are you feeling a deep desire to send more of your money to fund the salaries of that same political class who are right now threatening you? Wow. That's is on target. Now, again, I'm going to temper what I just shared with you with the understanding anger alone is not going to get us anywhere. I'm not saying that it's, it's not justifiable or even right to feel some real uh, righteous indignation at how we are being treated. And especially by bureaucrats, enforcers and, and politicians whose paychecks don't depend on them providing value to the community. Because they're being paid by taxes that are taken from us by threat of force. Let their paycheck stop for a while. Let them operate under the same conditions as the rest of us. And let's see how quick they are to keep, uh, you know, clamping down on those who won't do what they're saying. I don't know. Maybe that's a knee-jerk reaction, but it still has kind of a satisfying burn. Let's go to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Brian. Wow, I never heard that before. That's fantastic. All the government workers, their paychecks should stop also. And i like to add one thing to that is, is of course, we know that's not going to happen, but um, all, all of the cities, all of the places that are paying these government workers, the economy has been shut down, so taxes are going to be low. So how are they going to pay these people? Where's the money come from? Are they going to raise our taxes, the people of us that's not working for the government?
1: Yeah, good luck squeezing blood out of that turnip.
2: Exactly. All the people that's not working. Yeah, or working pretty little here, little there, part-time. Yeah, our future, it's, it's wow. Hey, you know, and, and also I'm thinking, you know, I really liked your lesson on economics because they're not teaching at schools anymore, as far as I know.
1: I wish I was, I was that car- smart, Ray. That's You know, I, I can't take credit for it. All I know is that was a good, simple explanation of why the government cutting us all checks is not going to begin to solve these problems for that. To, for those problems to be solved, we have to be able to engage in commerce. And, and and right now we're being hobbled and prevented from doing so.
2: But, you know, I don't think the illegal aliens will understand what you're saying, because they're coming in this country for a free handout, you know, free school for their kids, free medical, free housing. Or they're coming in to, to work under the table and not pay taxes, you know, and, and, and then the, the, all the kids, if they're not teaching economics in school – I mean, they, they want Sanders to become president so all of their colleagues' tuition can be um, wiped off, all the money they owe.
1: I may be out of step on this one. That's a distinct possibility. But I think this may be one of those cases where uh, if we're trying to get that moat out of the eye of the, the people coming here illegally because they don't understand economics, we've got a beam in our own eye. As, as citizens of this country for, for not recognizing this sooner and, and for sending politicians back to office over and over again who have been so irresponsible in their spending.
2: Yes, I think the conservatives understand this, but I don't think the liberals, liberals do. Or if they do understand it, they don't care. They're just out to plunder the government. You know, look at Nancy Pelosi and Feinstein and Hillary and all these politicians that are millionaires now. How, how did they become millionaire millionaires? They're, they're, uh, they're not out there just serving us.
1: Well, I don't expect you to agree with me, but I, I kind of see them as different sides of the same coin, left and right. There may be some good ones among them, but generally it's, it's about the power and not about good governance. Ray, thanks for your call. I want to bring up something here that uh, and I, I want to ask a sincere question. Why is it? that the freedom minded individuals are dismissed by both sides of the political spectrum. This plays directly into to my point that left and right, you will find statism in both flavors and a bunch of little variations in between. There's a great article by Henry Gardella published by the foundation for economic education that, uh, that has, I think a pretty good take on why libertarianism is not mainstream. And again, I want to give the disqual- the, the qualifier here rather that, this disclaimer is this is not shilling for the libertarian party per se, but just libertarian thought. In this case, Henry Gardella says Consider a libertarian. Ideas and phrases jump in your mind free market capitalism, legalization of marijuana, taxation is theft, Ayn Rand, anarchist utopia. But one characteristic stands out among the rest, and that is a zealous mistrust of government. Now, he says this libertarian is someone you will never take quite seriously, for he seems to blame every problem on the government. And he's clearly blind to the merit of a number of state programs. I mean, this is someone who wants to see the abolishment of public schools. Ridiculous. But he says, perhaps we should not be so hasty. Why is it exactly that libertarians are often dismissed by both sides of the political spectrum? See, the right wing sees a need for state power to maintain order and protect culture. For example, conservatives often ask the government to prohibit drug use, control immigration, and bolster the military. Meanwhile, the left wing sees a need for state power to correct economic and social inequalities. Progressives often ask the government to redistribute money from the rich to the poor, provide universal health care, and regulate corporate power. In the United States, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party vie for political power so naturally they appear as enemies. Yet these two parties actually have a lot in common. Both sides wish to expand the lengthy list of government agencies, USDA, FBI, CIA, Amtrak, CDC, TSA, etc., etc., to solve new problems. Neither side is actually happy to sacrifice any government organization or cut any government spending, preferring to, quote, reform the institution or reallocate the budget. And so he says, looking at what these parties have in common exposes the defining characteristic of libertarianism skepticism that the government has the authority and competence to solve a wide range of extremely difficult social and economic problems. So that would make uh, libertarians, I guess what a party of heretics. Well, in this case, the author is saying recently he's been helping a friend publish his new libertarian book. That friend's name is James L. Payne. And the book is titled the big government. We love to hate in this book. Jim articulates why libertarian is not libertarianism rather is not mainstream. Jim claims we've inherited a cultural presumption, a deep non-rational loyalty to government. And this loyalty manifests, for example, in the eagerness of journalists to call for government action despite their constant criticism of every government program under the sun. This cultural presumption also appears when presidents proudly claim to stand against spending in big government while actually increasing the size and scope of the federal budget. Our culture's attachment to government is even evident in the magnificence of the Capitol buildings and the White House. After all, why use the architecture of temples and cathedrals if not for worship? So Jim terms this attachment to government the competent authority presumption. That is the assumption that government is society's natural and proper problem solving agency. He says, It seems obvious to me that libertarianism is not mainstream because it challenges the competent authority presumption. We've got to take a quick break here. We will do so. We'll return in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I'm sharing with you an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is written by Henry Gardella, and it's called Why Libertarianism is Not Mainstream But Should Be. I think he zeroes in on why libertarians always seem to be the odd man out. And you hear things like, well, you know, first of all, you got to be electable. And, and, of course, the two-party system is pretty darn good at closing ranks. And even though they're loyal opposition to each other, they don't want to let anybody actually get into the uh, the equation who might stand a chance of changing the status quo. It works for both the left and the right. Sometimes the baton will pass from one hand to the other, but uh, has, has government ever failed to grow, regardless of which party happens to be in charge at the moment? Not within my lifetime. And I'm getting a little long in the tooth. By the way, I, just a quick aside here. Only because uh, sometimes I know he listens. My friend Carl, celebrating his 55th birthday today. Carl, I'm about six months behind you here. No, actually, I'm a little bit more than that. I I won't be 55 till December. But uh, old man, for the time being, happy birthday to the C train. And thank you for being such a great friend and a great influence. And uh, if anybody knows uh, my buddy Carl, Carl Snyder, you should probably wish him a happy birthday. All right. Shameless birthday plug aside, let's talk about questioning the unquestionable. Going back to this article by Henry Gardella, he says, so libertarians question government authority, they question its efficacy and purview, and this makes their ideas unpopular. Whether or not you agree that the competent authority presumption is a reasonable assumption, should we not at least question it? There's no reason that a general skepticism of government authority should lead to anarchy or chaos. In fact, he says we can make wiser policy decisions by asking the libertarian questions no one wants to ask. Questions like, what protects this program from corruption? What are the unintended consequences? Do we have the right to force others to comply with this rule? He says if we take these questions seriously, we can prevent failed or wasteful government programs. Instead of complaining, we can actually feel proud of our political system. So let's make libertarianism mainstream. Now, I might use just a slightly different phrasing, only because some people kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to libertarianism. Because they're going to think, ah, gay marriage with marijuana cigarettes and guns everywhere. Okay, fair enough. Let's make freedom mainstream. Meaning keeping government limited, keeping its efforts to uh, to bring force into a situation only to those times when it can show that someone has actually caused harm and then only to hold accountable whichever actors stand accused of causing harm and they're afforded due process and the state has to prove its case, etc. Rather than we're going to mold everybody, we're going to make everybody better by just passing more laws, more rules on top of rules. All right, moving along. I hear the words new normal and my gag reflex starts to kick in. But this is part of, I guess, the, the conditioning that we're undergoing right now is we'll get ready for the new normal. So one way sidewalks, parking lot, dining rooms. Is this our future? NPR has a very interesting article. I'll have this linked in the show notes. Margaret Krauss is the author. And she says small businesses are essential to cities and towns across the country. They create jobs. They create a sense of place. Think of New York City without bodegas, Portland, Oregon, without bike shops or your town without its dance studio or hardware store. But they also create sales, income and property tax revenues. And it's super important that we make it very easy for people to keep their purchases local. That's Karina Ricks, director of the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure in Pittsburgh. Well, cities like like Pittsburgh must make it possible to return to the streets and shop without losing the safety of physical distancing. If only so many people are allowed into a store at one time, how can others line up outside? If restaurants operate at 25% capacity, where will expectant diners wait? And this is a fair question. Rick says if it's going to require us to reimagine our streets, how much of our streets can we turn over? Many cities have already removed cars from streets to allow people to walk and to bike. They'll need even more space if people are allowed to go to shops and restaurants again. That's according to Brent Todarian, former chief planner for Vancouver, British Columbia, who Columbia rather, who leads his own company Todarian Urban Works. All of it requires more space between buildings, more life between buildings, he says. If we try to do all that without inconveniencing the cars, we will fail. Why does it seem like a backdoor approach to a green new deal? I'm surely not the only one picking up on that vibe. The article says in Tampa, Florida, officials will allow restaurants to add tables to streets in front of their establishments. In Atlanta, suburb parking lots are the new dining room. In an Atlanta suburb, rather, parking lots are the new dining room. This is I've seen this actually being done uh, where I live in Utah County, Utah. Even during all the, uh, the height of the scare, there was still curbside service, there was takeout, and people would go and park in their cars, and that's how they socialized. I guess you could always do it via Bluetooth, you know, over your telephone if you want to keep the windows up and whatever, and talk to your friends on their phone in the next car. But now you have city planners wondering, well, could one-way sidewalks limit people's exposure to one another the way one-way aisles do in grocery stores? Maybe some Pittsburgh streets will be open to cars only at certain times of the day, or speeds could be dramatically reduced. That way, street parking could be dedicated for walking, biking, or cafe tables, while an adjacent travel lane for cars remains. <sighs> I'm not sure I'm on board with this whole uh, new normal. I know that uh, people are concerned. I know that uh, we're looking at what is the post-pandemic world going to look like. But this sure sounds a lot like central planning to me. And I'm not sure that central planning will solve these problems as effectively as just letting the market determine what are the risks we're willing to engage in or what are the risks we're willing to assume. And for those who don't want to assume those risks, don't shop there. It just seems like this this is setting the stage or maybe fertilizing the soil for more government growth. Not exactly something I think we need at this point. 801 331 Hi, welcome to the show. Going once. Going twice and gone. All right, one final story. I'm just going to share this one with you because uh, it's, it's just an illustration of how crazy things have become. Texas women face 180 days in jail after neighbors alert police. They're giving manicures at home. This is from dailywire.com. Two young Texas women ages 20 and 31 now face up to 180 days behind bars and a $2,000 fine after police, tipped off by neighbors, orchestrated a sting operation to catch the women providing beauty services in their home, an apparent violation of a stay-at-home order. Neighbors of Anna Isabel Castro Garcia, age 31, and Brenda Stephanie Mata, age 20, sent anonymous tips to the Laredo Police Department via an app, according to the Midland Reporter Telegram. The department said in a statement both of the violators independently solicited customers via social media on both cases an undercover officer working on the COVID-19 task force enforcement detail made comment with each solicitor to set up an appointment for a cosmetic beauty service that is prohibited under the emergency ordinance. Castro Garcia was arrested after she agreed to and met with an undercover officer who posed as a customer needing nail service. Castro Garcia admitted to running a nail salon in her residence and promoting the business on social media, media rather, going against the mayoral decree currently in place, said police. Mata was arrested after she allegedly agreed to perform an eyelash service inside her residence for an undercover officer posing as a customer. Now, I know the, the, the letter of the law types are, are going to be all, they're going to be all gussified over well now. It's a rule and you got to follow the rules and nobody's above the rules. And I just want to ask just this simple question. Is it possible that sometimes there are bad rules, that sometimes there may be bad laws? In this case, nothing more than a politician's words on a piece of paper. Who was the victim? Where was the harm done? And frankly, this is the kind of case where, you know, I don't want to sound radical, but I really would hope that these women take this to a jury trial and that the jury turns around and sticks this in the prosecutor's ear and breaks it off. By nullifying any kind of a verdict against them, by nullifying any guilty verdict anyway, by by finding them not guilty. This is why you and I should never strive to get out of jury duty, because when ridiculous overreach on the part of government so bad that they actually had to go out and manufacture a crime while we're sending in our undercover task force officers to pose as customers to arrest these women for doing something that harmed absolutely no one. Well, now, Brian, they might have spread COVID-19. Okay, fine. Prove that they did. And I'll change my tune. But in the absence of absolute proof that they did, where is the harm? I can only pray that the ridiculousness of bureaucracy is starting to become clear to some people. Because if we can't get our minds around this, I shudder to think where we're going to be in another five years, if then...